0: Good morning to you. Good to see you this morning on this nice, warm, moderate day in Memphis. I just know next week I'm going to be the one that forgets, and I'll be right here wondering where you all went. And so if I'm not there right at 6.30, just realize I'm stumbling around figuring out what I just did wrong. We'll wait for you too when some of you do it. Habits run deep. When I get going on a road... And, and I go by somewhere where I normally turn left. I just turn left, I mean, you know, no matter where I'm going. Uh, so I know some of us are going to end up here. If there are several of you, just go ahead and have your little Bible study right around the round table and uh, enjoy yourselves. Guys, we are finishing 1 Corinthians today. Can you believe that? Turn to 1 Corinthians 16 and let's just remember kind of what this is all about. Paul is concluding what we know as his second letter here, the first letter we don't have, and the third letter we don't have. We have the second and the fourth. So, 1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is 4 Corinthians. He's already sent them one letter, and about the same time, he gets a letter from them asking them a lot of questions about sexuality and marriage, about the Lord's Supper, uh, and about the resurrection, and other kinds of things but he had already heard some things about them that he wanted to address. He heard from Chloe's household that there are all kinds of things going on there. And we've seen through our study of 1 Corinthians that the Corinthian church was a mess. If you ever get discouraged about your church, brothers, just pick up 1 Corinthians and remind yourself of the kinds of troubles we get into. We get into all kinds of troubles, and the church can be all kind of messed up. And Paul still calls them brothers and sisters. So as long as people are repenting and trusting in Jesus Christ, uh, they can be, have all kinds of brokenness in their lives and be dealing with all kinds of ethical issues. So I, I don't know of a church uh, that's a gospel church. I know of some churches that are worse than Corinth, frankly, because they've abandoned the gospel. I know a lot of churches like that. But I, I don't know any church that believes the gospel where the gospel is being taught that's any worse than this church. So let us be encouraged and challenged not to give up on the church. When you say, oh, they're just a bunch of hypocrites, you're talking about yourself. Because a believer and a follower of Christ looks at this and says, okay, that church needs my help and my attention. So as long as the gospel is being held up there, then we dive in. We've seen that. So they had all kinds of problems, and at the root of it was an arrogance and a self-centeredness that was causing all kinds of divisions. We saw that in the first four chapters of Corinthians. And then we saw how their relationships with each other were just not right. They were even suing each other in civil court over their differences rather than handling them like family matters and learning how to reconcile with one another within their own family of the church. So Paul takes that up. And of course their sexual immorality was rampant. They had all kinds of strange heresies floating around, uh, like the one that we examined last week. Some people in that church thought the resurrection had already taken place and that it was a spiritual reality, not a physical reality. Paul says, if that's what you're hoping for, you're to be pitied more than the pagans and everybody else in the whole world because the Christians are the big world's idiots if we only believe in a spiritualized resurrection. That kind of like spring pops up. Oh, when you meet Jesus, your life kind of pops up. No, your whole body's going to be raised one day. And that's the reason that he comes at the end of chapter 15. And he says, therefore, stand immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know that your work in the Lord is not in vain because it's leading to a resurrection. So everything that we're doing here is leading toward eternal life physically with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's where we had ended up last week, looking at the answer to the heresy that's going around today in many liberal churches, frankly, spiritualizing the resurrection. He ends there in chapter 15. Now he comes to the conclusion in 16. And the title that we've chosen for this, this study is Act Like Men. You say, you challenge my manhood, man. Well, I think 16, chapter 16 does kind of challenge our manhood. And he actually uses this word, uh, you'll see it in uh, verse 13, he says there, act like men. And the word there is a Greek word that says act like men, or play the man. So if you're playing the man in this big play, this big drama, then there are certain things you're going to do. We've seen first of all in 1 Corinthians, first thing you're going to do is get your life in order. Get your life in order with Christ. And that's the reason we call the whole study Holy Man and in an Unholy Society. First thing we've got to do is get our lives straightened out, walking toward Christ. But then what we're going to see in 16, if we're playing the role of the man, then we boldly and courageously take this message into the world. And the big problem with the unholy life is that it completely dissembles your life and neuters you and disables you from going out and making a difference in society and in the world. So if the church doesn't clean up its act, you don't clean up your act, we have no message for the world. And we also have no spiritual power to go into the world. So now Paul, having addressed the major issues of their personal and corporate holiness, he now says, guys, get it together, play the man, go out there and fight the fight. (coughs) And we'll see what that entails as we look at chapter 16. Let's read it uh, beginning with verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there may be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gifts to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing, I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit with you, the, uh, visit uh, you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanos were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Sorry about my voice. I sound a whole lot worse than I feel. I feel great. Uh, And I think my voice will probably make it just fine. But if you can't hear, just wave your arm and we will turn it up a little bit. Guys, yeah, he's, uh, he's concerned about their strength in the Lord and the mission that they have in Corinth and around the world. Every church is to be a church that has influence in the community where it is and around the world. So we begin with in house issues clean up your mess, and then get your house in order so that you're making a difference in your neighborhood, in your community, and around the world. You can see the heart of the Apostle Paul here. Now, he picks up the last two of his now concerning, which suggest he's still writing about things they asked about. So they asked about Apollos in verse 12. And they asked about the collection in verse 1. He had obviously mentioned it to them. And this collection is something that Paul took up around the world for the poor in Jerusalem. Now, we don't really know exactly why the Jerusalem saints were so poor, except that they were highly persecuted. And you'll also remember that in chapter 2 and chapter 4 in particular of the book of Acts, they shared their property with each other. They divested themselves of their property so that they could care for the poor themselves. So apparently they were notoriously a poor church. Also when you look at Paul's theology, he's teaching us that Gentiles are grafted into Israel so that we Gentiles now are the true Israel of God along with all of the Jews who were converted. So converted Jews and converted Gentiles make up Israel in the New Testament. But Paul also said first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. So wherever he went... He always evangelized in the synagogue first. Why? Because God had made covenant with that ethnic group as children of Abraham long ago. So he always goes there first, but he rarely ends up there because he almost always gets kicked out of the synagogue. So you, you find not just persecution from the Roman Empire, but persecution from the unconverted, continuing Jewish people who called themselves the people of God and they were no longer because Paul says in Romans 11, they got cut off. So they're no longer the people of God, but they think they are and they're acting unlike it, but they're claiming that title for themselves. And they persecuted those who were claiming to be the people of God and who actually were the people of God, Jews and Gentiles together. So in Jerusalem, they were a poor church, but Paul teaches that, yes, this is a new olive tree, but it's from the old stump. Remember Romans 11? So yeah, he cut off some Jewish branches, but the stump is the Jewish church. So we're all grafted into that Old Testament Jewish Israel. So therefore, we always show honor to the place from whence the gospel has come. And it's just like we should show honor to any nation whose whose missionaries have brought us the gospel. And as you travel the world... And you go to places that have recently become Christians, you'll find that they honor the missionaries from North America who have come to share with them. For example, in Korea, who's only been a strong Christian nation, and they have about 15% Christians over the past 100 years because of Methodists and Presbyterians primarily who went there 100 years ago. So they always show honor. And Paul showed honor to the Jews. And so when they were impoverished, especially the whole Church of Christ... Gentiles especially, will show their devotion to a multi-ethnic church by honoring their Jewish fathers that they used to despise. So Paul was regularly gathering up collection. Now when Paul would take that collection back to Jerusalem, that would be one of his primary tangible proofs that the Gentiles who were coming into the church loved their Jewish brothers. Because Paul would bring relief to Jewish Christians with Gentile money. And so he was helping the Jewish, the Jewish church in Jerusalem understand the multi-ethnicity of the church of Christ. So that was Paul's strategy. And Wherever he went, he collected for the poor Jewish uh, Jerusalem church. That's what he's doing here. And they asked him about it. And then he gives them instructions. So let's take a look at it. The first thing he's saying if we're going to act like men, is that we've got to give like men. Now, when he says men, most often he means people. Because the masculine pronoun was used in Greek and in Latin, and until recently in English, to speak of generic or general society. But here in this text, with that word... In verse 13, I believe he's talking about gender-specific men when he says act like men. I don't think he wants the women to act like men. I think he's speaking to the men. He's saying, you all rise up and behave like real men. And the first thing real men do is that they take a concern for things outside their homes. I'm very grateful for women's particular concern for hearth and home. And they notice when there needs to be a little paint brush up or something needs to be fixed, they'll point it out to you, or new curtains, or the children need extra clothing. They're pretty good at pointing that out, and I'm grateful for it. And I believe in some ways, not always, I don't mean to be overly typifying, stereotyping, But generally speaking, they notice more of that stuff than you do. And you need to listen to them and get behind the the program. Men, on the other hand, more often than not, are more sensitive of the two genders to the concerns outside the home. And I think when you're acting like a man, you actually are looking outside your home to care not only for your home, but to care for those around your home and around the world. And Paul's saying, act like men. Concerning the collection, y'all get it together. Yeah, it's a thousand miles away. But this is the root of the church and they're impoverished. Yeah, they're not Gentiles, they're Jewish people. But they're your brothers and sisters. And I'm calling upon you men to take notice of this. And if anybody is to lead the external mission of the church, it should be the men. I believe in women's missionary societies and all the rest. I'm grateful for the heroic female missionaries like Elizabeth Elliot or or, uh, (coughs) others that we could mention this morning who have just been tremendous missionaries. But generally speaking, as the church gets healthy, the men rise up and they lead the external mission. So let's give like men. Let's give with concerns beyond just our buildings and facilities, beyond just the development of our children, beyond just the concerns of our sanctuaries, and let's get men to be thinking about the world. That's what Paul is saying to them. Now he says, first of all, you'll notice in verses 1 and 2, he's showing them how to give systematically. And the reason you give systematically is because you're systematically a man. You're not just a man today or tomorrow. You're a man for life. So you want your whole financial life to be manly, systematically. And there are some ways to do that. He says, first of all, Notice uh, the first thing observation I want to make here is he says uh, he shows us that we're directed to do this. Some men think the only giving is when it just comes from your heart with no prompting or no direction from the scriptures. Somehow people have got it into their little heads that the New Testament doesn't have any law in it. It has law in it, and when you're in love with Jesus Christ, you want His law. Because His law is showing you how to be more like Him. That's what the law is. It's a written description of the character of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament law and the New Testament law are descriptions of Christ. He's the fulfillment of the law. So we say, Lord, give me that law. Not because I think I can do it, but because I want to aspire to do it. I want your help to move me in that direction. So He's directing us to give. He doesn't say, now concerning the collection, as I suggested to the churches of Galatia. No, I directed the churches of Galatia. Now, I'm directing you. So, when you tend to flee from those stewardship messages, think again. You're supposed to be under stewardship messages and you're supposed to be directed. I'm supposed to be directed. And a real man knows when he meets a real God. That's another thing a real man knows. He knows authority when he sees it. When that... uh, Roman centurion met Jesus. He says, Jesus, you don't have to come under my household. I know authority. I'm a centurion. You just speak and it will be. Now there's a real man. So a real man recognizes authority and says, Lord, you direct my finances and I'm carrying it out because I know authority and I see authority in you. So God directs us in our giving. Secondly, notice in these first two verses, we give on the Lord's day. He says, hear your directions. Look at it, on the first day of every week. On the first day of every week. Why? Because that's when you worship. And we know clearly from the early church, they worshiped on Sunday, not Saturday, because the Lord was raised on Sunday. Now, there are many folks who have the shopper's special worship service on Saturday night or the golfer's special worship service on Saturday night. I understand all that. Uh, And and if you work on Sunday, uh, you'll be grateful to have a service on Saturday night. I get all that. Nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with uh, worshiping 24-7 all week long. But I don't see any reason why the church should abandon the Lord's Day that the early church honored even when they did work on Sunday. They didn't get Sunday off. First century, they're working on Sunday. So what did they do? They gathered early in the morning before work, just like we're doing today. And they had their worship service. I really am going to make it just fine. God willing. And they worshiped at night because it was on Sunday night when Jesus appeared to them in the communion. So they would often have the Lord's Supper on Sunday night. That was a work day. We get the day off. It's a wonderful privilege. Why are we frittering it away on the Lord's Day? Let me just say a word here about systematic giving. I suggest you use... A Sabbatarian pattern. That's what he's suggesting here. Every seven days on the first day of the week, do something with your finances. Lay it aside. Now you say, Wilson, you don't understand my income. I have no idea what I'm going to make. Do you know what you made last year? Oh, well, yeah, I, could, I can calculate that. We'll calculate it and use that number for this year. And if you end up doing a whole lot better, well, you can make it up in November and December. But every time it comes in, the easiest way to do it, every time your income's in, Income comes in. Take it off the top. Take your tithe. Tithe means 10%. Is that gross or net? (laughs) I had had an old deacon in the first church I served. He was asked that one time. And he said, what do you want God to bless, the gross or the net? (laughs) Take that to the bank, will you? So, you tithe on the gross. And I know there are exceptions to that for you. You all are making a gazillion dollars and all the tax implications. You all just go figure that out. But the rest of us normal people, you, you tithe on the gross. And uh, then you, you take it off the top. And, and what I do is I take it off the top. Of course, mine's predictable, so it's easier. But then I just, every time I enter the sanctuary, I've got an offering. So I know I'm going to be entering the sanctuary twice on Sunday mornings. There's going to be an offering in both those services. So I just take, and I get paid bi-weekly. So there's four offerings I'm going to make. So I take whatever I'm going to give off that paycheck, and I write four checks so that I never go into the sanctuary empty-handed. Why would you go in there empty-handed? On the first day of every week, lay it aside, he says. So your offering is not primarily to fund Christian ministry. It does, and that's important. And that's a secondary reason that you give. And it's a real reason. But The primary reason you give is because you're worshiping God. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, when people had sent him an offering, he says, I take great delight in this, not because I need it. And he was grateful to get it. But he said, not because of my need, but because you're offering it up as a sweet-smelling sacrifice to the Lord. And he took pleasure in their offering, their worship. So, gentlemen, you need to take, in my opinion, in order to get full pleasure out of this for yourself, in order to make the most of it out of worship for what an offering really is. As a man, you bring the fruit of your labor as a man, the work of your hands, and you bring it in to the Lord and give Him tribute because He's worthy of it and you recognize authority when you see it. So, when you're in worship... You sing hymns to worship Him. You pray to worship Him. You offer your bodies a living sacrifice to worship Him. But you give Him gifts, the tithe. Why tithe? Why 10%? Because that's what He said and He's the boss. That's why it's tribute to the King who is telling you how much He wants. So that acknowledges Him as King because He can can lay the price down and tell you 90% if He wants to. And if he says 90%, you bring it and starve to death. You're better off starving, obeying the Lord, than being fat and disobeying Him. If he only says 10%, which is unheard of, it's such a small amount. If the king only says 10%, say, Lord, are you sure? Yes, I said 10%. Did you hear me? 10%. So you bring it in. And then if you want to honor Him beyond that, great. Those are called free will offerings. But you bring your worship to the Lord. That's the reason that we take collections in church. It's not because that's the most modern way to do it. It's not because it's the most convenient way to do it. It's not because we've got you trapped. Why don't we just get it while you're there? It's because it's an act of worship. And the offertory in your church is a moment when you offer your whole being to God and you pay Him tribute. And that's the reason here at our church we not only pay him tribute, but we sing songs of praise and thanksgiving even as the offerings brought forward because we give our voices, we give our lives, and we give our finances. Now, I have to say, you second Presbyterians, you know, I stand up front. I put my offering and I'm looking at those plates and I don't see a whole lot of stuff in there. And that doesn't mean you're not giving. It means that you're, you know, you're, you're doing it electronically and so on. And I, that's great. You know, you, you can do that as much as you want. I'm just telling you, I think you're missing out on something. You say, well, I don't even have a a checking account. Why would I need a checking account anymore? I'm saying get one just for Sunday so that you can actually physically put something forward for the Lord because it's an act of worship. That's what I recommend to you. He's saying on the first day of the week. So he's saying on Sunday. He's saying when you get together for church. That's what he's saying. So uh, it seems to me there's a whole theology of worship and of our obedience to the Lord that's tied up in this little statement here In 1 Corinthians 16. And then thirdly, we plan our giving. So we systematically plan. He says says, each of you put something aside and store it up. So he may be speaking to individuals to store it up. He's probably saying to the whole church, y'all store it up. You as a church, give systematically on the Lord's Day and store it up. And of course, we're going to give it to the missionary when he shows up. And so the church stores it up systematically. Let me just ask, do you have a financial plan for the year? I hope you do. I hope that you're generally aware of what you're likely to bring into the household this year. I hope you've got your expenses under control and that they are pretty close to what your income is going to be. I hope that you've planned to put something in savings. It's difficult when you have kids in college. I understand this. I had three in college at the same time one time. Man, I'm not putting stuff in the bank. I'm taking stuff out of the bank. I'm taking stuff from anywhere I can get it. You know, refinance your house 14 times. What do you have to do? Get these kids through school. I understand there are seasons of life like that. But beyond those seasons of life, are you doing your best to have margins in your financial life so that your income is expected to exceed your expenses, and do you have a plan to lay aside for retirement? I look at some of these things on uh, TV and on uh, uh, USA Today, and of the massive numbers of people who are in their mid to upper 50s and have no plan for retirement. Young guys, listen to me. That's completely irresponsible. You're just asking somebody else to take care of you, and that's not kind. And your kids will feel responsible to take care of you. So honor your children right now and begin to lay aside at least 10% for retirement when you're in your upper 20s. And if you haven't started already, get started. And if you need, to, you need a financial advisor to tell you how much more than 10% you need to lay aside, get an advisor and start putting it aside. If you don't, you're just simply robbing from your family later on. And that means you need to lower your income, uh, your discretionary income level. That means you live in a smaller house, drive an older car, less entertainment, less travel. Do it. So be disciplined in your financial life. There are many things about your finances we could talk about. But the most important thing about your finances is that you give, that you're generous, and that you do it systematically. Let me ask you, do you have an annual plan for giving? If you don't have an annual plan for giving, you're going to wait for your your enzymes to tell you, to move you romantically when there's a cause that your heart really goes out to. That's not a good way to give. You're just waiting for the next television advertisement, the last promotion, the next person who asks you for some money for the Red Cross, who happens to be a friend. It's not intelligent giving at all. And you'll see here, we've handed out some things to you, and maybe you've seen this before, but our general advice on on giving. And you'll see there are different models there. They all involve a tithe. And what we're suggesting to you is that you plan for the whole year. You want to give a tithe to the storehouse, to the church. That's where the tithe goes, to the local church. So you give a tithe there. If you're a mature Christian, that's, that's, those are first steps. That's a toddler's steps is tithing. So you're not going to move toward tithing. You're going to move away from tithing. Move beyond tithing. And as you grow in the Lord you're going to give more than 10%. And then you have strategies for where you're going to give that and how you're going to give it. We've tried to give you a summary of the advice that we use there on page 2 on giving to non-church institutions. And there are about nine parameters there that you might look at. When you're giving to a parachurch organization or a secular charitable organization, you should evaluate it according to some of those standards. If you're giving to your church, obviously you should always be evaluating your church. Is it a gospel-centered church? Do they believe the Bible? Then you join that church and you give to it, a tithe. You give beyond the tithe outside the church, and there are several different ways to do that. I suggest that before the year starts, and maybe your fiscal year is something other than January 1, but most of us can think January 1 to December 31, that you plan your giving. I've got all, all my giving is already determined for the entire year. The only thing I don't know what I'm giving to are what I call uh, special gifts, and I've already laid aside in my whole financial plan to have sufficient funds to handle those requests. Things like, for example, some of your kids want to go to the mission field. I make it a habit not to turn one of them down. I know now I'll get 400 checks, you know, a request for, for a mission uh, but I don't, I, I don't turn any of our kids down who ask me to support them on a foreign mission trip. So I plan for that. I'm, I estimate how much I'm going to be asked. And that goes in that bucket. And I've got about three big buckets. Church in several categories there. parachurch several categories there. And then special giving. And I can't predict what those categories are. And, so, and I've got it lined out by quarter. And I know where everything's going to go. So... Be aggressive, gentlemen. This is the most important thing you do with your money. The most important thing you do with your money is worship God. And that's going to endure right into the new heavens and the new earth. So get it well planned. And you assess where you want to spend your money. So when someone calls me and says, um, we have an organization here and we want, to, want you to help with some widows. Well, I, I believe in helping widows. And so uh, would you please give? I say two things to them. Number one, I never give on the phone, so if you'd like for me to consider giving, please send me something in writing, and I'll consider it. So that's the first thing. I don't give any requests on the phone. Secondly, uh, if, if it's something that's decent, I'll say to them, you know what? My giving has already been allocated for this year. I'll consider it for 2015. Now, if it's an emergency, obviously, we all respond. Tax-deductible or not tax-deductible, we respond to emergencies. But in your giving, please be strategic, just like you are in your business investments. In your business, you don't just, somebody stop you in the hallway and say, you know what, we ought to add to this building over here. Okay, let's call the big contractor. Good heavens, you sit down on your balance sheet and your financial statements and you figure out what you should do and what you can do, what the likely returns are of that investment. Come on now. If your giving really is the most important thing you do, you put your best thinking into it. That's what he's saying. Systematically, lay it aside. And then fourthly, he says, we give as we have received. We'll get into this more later on in 2 Corinthians, in chapters 8 and 9. But we have this huge motive for giving. And the motive is, we've been given more than we could ever ask or imagine in Jesus Christ. And He impoverished Himself that we might become rich. Come on now, we're following Jesus. And that's what people do who follow Jesus. They're generous. You say, well, I've got Scottish blood in my system. Well, hello, I do too. And you say, well, I've got some other ethnic group. I'm I'm Dutch. Well, great for you. I'm Scottish. We're both cheap. Now, let's get on with it and let's repent and get an aggressive giving plan that's systematic. That's what he's saying. Men give like men. Give systematically. Secondly, give carefully. He says, when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. We've already discussed this. Give carefully. And every penny should be accounted for. Paul was always very careful about this. When George Whitfield evangelized the colonies and led thousands and thousands of people in the colonies to Christ, he also raised money for an orphanage. He was careful with every penny. There was an accounting of every collection he took up in Evangelistic Crusade for his orphanage in Georgia. You just watch anybody, any godly man who's handling tithes and offerings, they're scrupulous to the nth degree. I'm grateful that, you know, in this very room we have Harold Ware and John Adamson who have handled our finances since I've been here, two men who are scrupulous with every penny that people God's people give. And that is part of our pastoral ministry. That is a pastoral ministry. For those men and those working with them to be careful, to account for everything and to report it clearly and to come under the authority of auditors and of finance committees and things like that. Some of you are in ministry. Account for every penny. There should be no shenanigans. And when there are, you should deal with it honestly and openly. That's what the apostle always did. He says, you send people with me. We'll either send your people, or if I need to go, your people are going to come with me. Because every penny you gave is going to be given to the Jews in Jerusalem. And then thirdly, give personally. And that means you invest. You invest in people. So you're giving for people, for the glory of God. You're giving to missionaries so that they'll lead people. To Jesus Christ. And you can see it in the apostle's life. I don't just want your money. I want you as my friend. When I come through there, passing on to somewhere else, I don't want it to be just passing through. I want to spend some time with you. And so we give to our missionaries, but we host our missionaries. That's the reason Second Presbyterians, when we have our Friday night banquet with missionaries, we're doing what the apostle Paul is saying here. They're passing through. But they're not just passing through. They want to spend time with us. So spend time with them. And that's what Paul is asking for. Spend time with me. Because we're personally invested in this ministry together. So let me tell you, you, when, when I give to the World Mission Fund at Second Presbyterian Church, I know that I'm supporting Aileen Coleman in Jordan. And if you've been to Jordan and seen what she does, you want to invest in that as fast as you can. Because I am now carrying out Aileen Coleman's ministry because I pray for her and I give for her. That's my ministry over there. I'm going, man, I'm doing really well. Look at my ministry in Jordan. I'm leading Bedouins to Jesus Christ. And I am because I'm personally invested in Aileen Coleman. Get invested in people. The people who are the missionaries and the people that they're serving. To the best of your ability, get invested in Memphis. Don't just write checks. Get to know people. Spend time with them. It's a very personal thing to be giving tithes and offerings for the ministries that people carry out. Secondly, exploiting opportunities. You want to personally exploit opportunities. He says, I'm going to stay in Ephesus though until Pentecost because I've got a door open here. And Paul says in Colossians when he writes to them from Rome, He says, pray for me that a door will be opened. So when Paul sees a door, he goes for it. And in your strategic plan for giving, when you see a door, go through it. There are many opportunities like that. And thirdly, tackling challenges. He says there are many adversaries. Paul in chapter 15, just the previous chapter, spoke of wrestling with lions in Ephesus. So it sounds as though he feels like he's grappling with lions. And if you read Acts chapter 19, you'll see what those lines were. So he had tremendous challenges. Here's how men give. They give systematically. They plan their giving because they know this is the most important investment I'm making with my money. They connect it personally. So it's not just impersonally writing checks. They get involved. They know what's going on. They build relationships with God's servants. And thirdly... They look for opportunities. Men who are Christian men are looking for ways in which they can leverage things for the kingdom of God. And then they're taking on the challenges. They don't run from them. They tackle them. So when you see opposition or impediments or hostility in Memphis, you tackle it. You don't shrink back into your little church and just make the walls a little higher and the doors a little a lot more often. You go toward those challenges and you challenge the challenges. They had to keep Paul from getting up in the, in the, in the stadium in Ephesus. He had, If you've been to that stadium, you know it will hold about 30,000 people. And they had to hold Paul back because he wanted to go out and preach the gospel to the people who wanted to wring his neck. And they finally got him out of there because Paul is going toward the challenges. That's what men do. That's what we're built for. Men are actually built to die for something. And the point is, you've got to find the right thing to die for. And usually it's your lusts and desires and your, your sensuality that you will be willing to die for that. But real godly men are willing to die for Christ in the kingdom. We get our lives focused. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, secondly, verses 10 through 12, partner like men. And what does he mean by that? Well, First of all, he speaks of Timothy, and he teaches us, don't intimidate the timid. Timid Timothy. Paul says to him in First Thess- Timothy, Timothy, son, drink a little wine for your stomach. It will help your digestion. Timothy had a nervous stomach. He was a nervous little man. He was not bold by nature. But Paul says to him, you've not received a spirit uh, of fear, but a spirit of love and power and self-control. Remember, Timothy, it's not your natural being. It's the supernatural being of Christ working through you by the power of the Holy Spirit that's going to enable you. Now that's what he's saying to Timothy. But now look what he's saying to Timothy's congregation. Y'all take care of him now. Go easy. The man is timid. He's a scaredy cat. And if y'all go start pulling rank on him or trying to intimidate him, you're going to shut down the gospel ministry. Real men hear that. And they realize we all have different constitutions. And there are some men with nervous systems that are not real strong, just they were born with it. And you're going to disable their effectiveness if you go intimidating them all the time. So he says, first of all, don't intimidate the timid. Put them at ease. Do not despise them. Help them financially. So Paul had no trouble asking you for money. He wouldn't ask you for it, he'd tell you for it. Because he knew what he was doing and he knew that he was blessing you by taking your money and spending it a lot better than over at the bar down the street. So he happily got your money from you. Timothy wasn't like that. So Paul says, y'all give him some money. Don't make him ask. He's not good at it. So he's saying, with people who have usefulness in the kingdom and who are timid, the rest of you men, be men, gather around him and strengthen him and help him be effective. That's what the community of men is is all about. We all have different, different characteristics and traits. And then he says in verse 12, not only don't intimidate the timid, don't impede the strong. You ask about Apollos, everybody loves Apollos. He's a great preacher. He's eloquent. He moves people. He's attractive. He's smart. Everybody wants Apollos. You want Apollos. But Apollos has other things to do, okay? So act like men and let Apollos be Apollos. He's got a job out there. So you love Ravi Zacharias. Great. I love Ravi. But he's got an evangelistic ministry out there, so don't hassle him too much. I try not to. We just try to get in here about every five years, hassle him just a little bit. Chuck Colson. I used to hassle him. And he finally wrote me about a three-page letter explaining why he just can't do local church ministry because of all that he's got going on in prison ministry. I wrote him a letter back and apologized for hassling him. I said, "Chuck, of course we understand. I won't ever ask you to do that again. Just know that I'll be praying for you." There are some, some Apollos out there, and Paul's saying, "Look, Apollos is not there because not because I didn't tell him to come by and see you. He said himself he couldn't come. Y'all relax. You don't have to have the evangelical jet set in your church." To be men. So take Timothy. Okay? Learn from Timothy. You don't have to have a pause. He's, He's saying to them. So don't impede the strong by demanding their attention, always wanting to be with them, get their time. Relax. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're His men. So don't impede the strong. Now, he says in verse 13, stand like men. And he uses four present active imperatives here. Be watchful. Stand firm. Act like men. Be strong. You get the point? Vigilance, constancy, courage, strength. That's what men do. Please do it in the church. Sometimes I think men think they're supposed to turn into women when they go to church. And some of them I think do. And Paul is saying God made us to be men and all that testosterone you've got is supposed to be deployed. Not shut down. So deploy it on the athletic field of the kingdom of God. And on the battlefield of the Lord Jesus Christ. And go into battle. Go into game. Go into a, a, ambitious, aggressive activity for the sake of the kingdom of God. And I do believe over, the, over my lifetime there has been a feminization of the church. And I love women and you know it. And so many of the leaders in our church and servants in our church are women and we're grateful for them. But men need to act like men. And the church needs to have men who are leading and being the aggressors with respect to the kingdom of God in the world. And that's not to the exclusion of women. But men have a peculiar leadership role and an exemplary role to show the rest of the world, including all the uh, women, how important this is. So, all of those... Uh, Traits that are listed there. Stand like men. Lastly, love like men. Let all that you do be done in love. We don't fight battles because we hate people. We fight battles because we love people. I don't go to war because I hate the enemy. I go to war because I love my countrymen. And so when you're acting like a man in the power of the Holy Spirit, you're doing it out of love. The people you're trying to reach who are poor or lost or lonely and the people you're trying to protect and care for in the church who are needful of strong male leadership that serves and protects them. That's what's needed. So do everything that you do in your mission out of love. Anything that's not done out of love is not Christ centered and not honoring to him. I don't care what you're doing if it's not out of love, it is not Christian ministry. So notice under this, first of all, submit to those to whom we should submit. A strong man recognizes authority. I notice when when Peyton Manning's interviewed about his team, anytime it touches on a team issue, he defers to John Fox. Peyton Manning obviously has enormous authority, but he he recognizes authority, his own and other people's. And so a man who's really acting like a man is one who knows authority when he sees it, and he's quick, not slow, quick to submit to all legitimate authorities over us. Secondly, he gives honor. And Paul says to them, look, these guys, Stephanos, Fortunatus, Achaicus, they're probably the ones who carried Paul's letter. So they were runners, mailmen. He says, you, you show recognition for people like this. So if you're on a, on a church board, or you're a pastor, or a leader in your ministry, be sure you're recognizing the servants in the church. Corporately, as a board, and individually as leaders. You're recognizing them, giving them honor. And when you give honor, you're taking honor away from yourself. And you're explaining that this is not your organization. This is not your success. It's God's success working through these people. And that's the reason sometimes we don't encourage. It's just pride. And then thirdly, connect. Connect, connect, connect. He said the churches of Asia send you greetings. Your good friends, Aquila and Priscilla, together with those who are meeting in their house, they send you greetings. All the brothers send you greetings. Everybody's greeting you. Receive those greetings from far away. You have brothers and sisters. So men connect internationally with the church everywhere. Connect with it. And then he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. So what's the comparison to that? A handshake, maybe a light hug. But you connect with people at church. Real men are not loners. Real men, they may have a tendency toward lonership, but they connect. How sad it was. I just recently saw a documentary on Johnny Carson. We all, those of us in my generation, we love Johnny Carson. You know, last thing you, you see before you probably doze off, you know, Johnny Carson. Everybody loved Johnny Carson, except for his first three wives, his, his three sons he neglected, and all of his friends who said they didn't really weren't friends because he was really warm when they'd go on the set on TV, and as soon as the lights went off, he didn't have a thing to say. He was aloof and cold and distant. That's not a Christian man. A Christian man connects, builds relationships. Uh, fourthly, we focus. Isn't this odd? Paul picks up the pen from his secretary. He he most often used amanuensis secretaries. He takes the pen, and says, "Here, Paul. I'm Paul. I'm writing this one." Oh, good. Paul's going to give us something really sweet and kind. <laughs> Look at this. I, Paul, write this Greek with my own And If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Oh, Lord, come. (laughs) Golly. Now, Paul's connecting with us, but golly, Paul. Here's what he's saying No fooling around. We connect, we sacrifice for each other, we die for each other. But let's make one thing really clear we've got a word from God, and He is the Lord the boss, the master. And if anybody doesn't follow what I've been giving you in this letter, Paul says, don't let him say he loves the Lord because he's going to face the, the, the curse of God Himself when Jesus Christ comes back. Oh, Lord, come quickly. So there is this sharp edge of truth and righteousness, a focus on the kingdom of God in every relationship. There are no sentimental relationships that trump the kingdom of God and the message of Christ. None. Not your marriage, not your kids, your grandchildren, your favorite friend. Nobody sentimentally trumps the kingdom of God and the business that we're about. Be sure, as men, there's always a focus to what you're doing. Lastly, receive the love of God. You can't give love away if you don't have it. Some of you were not loved very well by your mother or your daddy. And I want you to know I truly am deeply sorry about that. That has left a challenge with you for the rest of your life. But you've got to work on that. You've got to learn how to receive someone's care and affection for you. You've been taught not to believe it. You've been taught to question it. Not to trust the love that's given to you. And Paul is saying, look, the grace of the Lord be with you. And then he says, I love you. Can you believe that? I love you. And you need to receive that love from God, from other Christian men and Christian leaders, because it's only when you believe that you're being loved that you then give love out to others. If you will not receive love, you're faking it when you try to love others because you don't believe it in the first place. Because you haven't received it for yourself. If you need psychological counsel, please get it at the Christian Psychological Center. If you need pastoral counsel, please get it with some of us. But open your heart to being loved by the Gospel of Jesus Christ. He laid down His life for you. He was the greatest man of them all. And He loved you. You've got to receive that as your claim to fame. Now you're ready to be a real man. And only then. You can't do it unless you receive those last sentences in the gospel according to Paul in 1 Corinthians. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great letter that we have studied. Thank you for the things that we've gleaned from it. Help each one of us to be holy men in an unholy world and to stay holy in it. All for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.